This is Haggai's story. Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would help us on this Christmas Eve morning to recognize the good news of Jesus in this ancient text. Help us, Lord, to see what you see and to glory in what you glory in and to recognize your goodness for us in Christ. Would you do these things for us so that we might have life? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Ezra tells the story. Ezra gives us the context of this whole bit of prophecy here. Ezra is one of those obscure Old Testament books, historical books, kind of tucked in between Chronicles and Job, if you know where to find those in your Old Testament. Ezra tells us the story. About 538 years before the birth of Christ, God worked a marvelous thing. God stirred the heart of a king the king who had otherwise no interest in the God of Abraham, God stirred the heart of this king. His name was Cyrus, and Cyrus was so stirred by the Spirit of God that he published an edict to all of his people throughout the land of the Middle East at that time. And this is what he said. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. That's a remarkable thing if you think about it. A king like Cyrus to suggest that the God of heaven has told him, you are to build a house for me in Jerusalem of Judah. And on he goes. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, it had been, for a little context for you, about 70 years since the exile had started from Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah. About 70 years since that exile had begun. And it had been about 200 years since the exile had begun from the northern kingdom of Israel at the hands of the Assyrians. About 200 years. 
And so you can imagine that not all of the Israelites would want to return. It would be sort of like someone coming to you and saying, your great-grandfather was born in Red Cloud, Minnesota, and now it's time for you to move back and restore the family farm. You'd be a little confused at that, wouldn't you? Or maybe even more so if you were one of the Israelites whose family had been gone for 200 years from the land, for someone to come to you and say, your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather is from Holland, and it's time for you to go back and restart the family business carving wooden shoes. You'd be really confused about that. You would say, well, I have my family here. I've got my neighbors and my school and my, my activities here in this place. I don't want to leave here. What do I have to do with those things? And so just as God had had to stir the heart of a king, so also he stirred the hearts of about 50,000 Israelites. That's what Ezra tells us. About 50,000 Israelites, God stirred their hearts and they picked up their lives. And along with supplies from the king, they returned. So they, like a family on a Christmas journey, traveled some 500 miles to the west to get back to Jerusalem. And when they arrived there, what did they find? Discouragement. The previous glory of Solomon's temple, which some of them had seen and some of them had heard, the previous glory of that temple had been reduced to a pile of rubble. Ancient stones tumbled down upon each other in the midst of charred wood burned by the Babylonians decades before. Discouragement. And so for the first year of their new residency, they spent their time setting up house. I mean, you and I would do the same, right? They needed a place to lay their head, a table on which to eat their bread and crops to grow. They had some things to do to set up house, and they spent the first year doing that. But in the second year of their new residency, their leaders, Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, called the people to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. They paid the masons and the carpenters. They placed an order for cedar logs on Amazon. It was going to come from Lebanon in that day. And they began to work. They began to rebuild the temple of God. And as they built, they sang. Ezra tells us they sang. God is good. His steadfast love endures forever to his people Israel. They sang as they worked. And when they perceived that they had finished the first task, building the foundation of the temple, they stepped back to take a look. And there was a very divided response. The younger generation looked at the work that they had done and they cheered. Yay, we've finished something. And the older generation, the ones who had been there before, the ones who had seen the temple as it had been decades before, stepped back and looked and they broke down in tears. They wept with grief. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. It was nothing like it would have been before. The younger generation with their inexperience and frankly their ignorance of things did not know what to properly expect. And the older generation with their experience and their knowledge of the way things had been expected more than reality could possibly deliver. And then to make matters worse, the locals 
of the land began to be trouble for them. They began to oppose the work. You know, there were locals in the land at the time. When the Assyrians had come in and, as I said, vacuumed the Israelites out of the land, and then the Babylonians had done the same in Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside, they had exiled the Israelites out. They didn't leave the land empty. They replaced them with their own people to occupy the land during that time. And now those people are there living in the midst of the land. And those are the people who we come to know in the New Testament as the Samaritans. So you can understand why the Jews of Jesus' day were not happy to see Samaritans. Ezra tells it like this. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. From the days of Cyrus to the days of Darius, king of Persia, 16 years of nothing but discouragement. What do you do when discouragement sets in? What do you do when the final exams that awaited you at the end of the semester seem so insurmountable that your body rejects them and responds against the notion of taking them? What do you do when the project that is your responsibility laying before you is so complex you don't even know where to start? What do you do when, once again, you find yourself caught in the midst of an end-of-the-year season when all is supposed to be merry and bright, but for you, only regrets and failures and shortfalls and maybe even death prevails in your line of sight? What do you do when discouragement sets in? I know what I do. I retreat to the comfort and security and familiarity of my own house. And that's what these people did. So we can't blame them, right? We would do the same thing. That's what they did. They retreated to their own homes for 16 years. And they paneled their walls. They built their places. They they farmed their crops. And they retreated to their own places until the word of the Lord came through Haggai. And I would summarize that word in this way. You should have expected that the means of grace God designed would be the path that God would bless. You should have expected that the means of grace God designed would be the path that God would bless. What had God designed? He had designed a place where his people could come to him. You know, that was, after all, the content of Cyrus' decree, rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And that idea had a a long history to it, right? Abraham over a a millennium before, had passed through the land and had built an altar at Bethel, a place where he would worship God. And he had even been told by God, take your son, your only son, to the place where I will show you and offer a sacrifice there for me. That would be the, the mount on which the temple eventually would stand. And then Moses, in the wilderness, leading the people, God had them construct a tabernacle, a a portable worship center where the priests would come, a place where they would come to God in order to represent the people before him. And then the temple was built and the people could come and bring their own offerings of worship to the priests to offer to God. And then the exile occurred and the destruction of the temple and now 16 years of delays and discouragement and the word of God through Haggai comes. Is this the time for you to retreat to your comfortable houses while my house lies in ruins? God says to them, consider your ways. 
You plant crops, but you harvest little. You eat and drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but nobody's warm. And your wages disappear as if into a bag filled with holes. So God says to them, consider your ways. Go and build my house that I may be glorified. Apart from a place where they could go to God, nothing that they had or did ever found satisfaction or completion or fulfillment. Nothing, nothing at all. Now, I don't think that we can say in our day and age or any day and age that God withholds the good of ordinary things whenever we don't do what he commands us to do. That's what Santa Claus does. That's not what God does. He's far too gracious for that. However, as I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, God whispers to us in our pleasures and he shouts at us in our pain. Sometimes he creates circumstances to get our attention. And that's exactly what he was doing in this case. He says to them, you're ignoring the place that I designed for you to come to me. So I'm causing the good of ordinary things to ignore you. Now that makes me wonder. It makes me wonder, do we realize just how seriously our God takes the means of grace that he designed for our good? The gathering together for worship, the observing of sacraments, the receiving of his word. Do we recognize and realize how seriously God takes those things? Realizing that whatever gifts we long to give or receive at Christmas time pale in comparison to what God gives to us in the means of grace. What does He give to us but Himself? And that's a remarkable thing. That's a truly remarkable thing that, that our God should give to us Himself, considering the nature of our own hearts. Now, Even Santa himself allegedly will testify to that. Some of you, like me, occasionally see online that uh, Christian satire newsletter called the Babylon Bee. And just this week, the Babylon Bee reported that Santa had become a Calvinist. Santa himself had learned Reformed theology. Probably he was in this college dormitory reading a Michael Horton book. I don't know. And he learned some Reformed theology and he recognized the glory of God in contrast with the depravity of man. And what did Santa do but to immediately move every single person on the planet to the naughty list? Now, I don't know if that's true. But if it is, he would be right. And the prophets would attest to it too, right? I mean, that's often the theme of all the prophets, isn't it? You are unfaithful, you are unfaithful, you are unfaithful. And if that's all that they ever had to say to us, it would undo us. But it's not. What is Haggai's message? You should have expected that the means of grace God designed would be the path that God would bless. And if God had designed a place for us to come to Him, then how He would bless us is with a plan in which he would come to us. That was inevitable. It would have to happen, wouldn't it? Verse 4, tells Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people, be strong, be strong, be strong. The repetition is for emphasis. Be strong 
for I am with you. Now, God, of course, had already come to his people, and he reminds them of that in verse 5. I am with you according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. He had come to them to rescue them, and he was now with them to lead them, and he had a plan to come again to redeem them, to redeem you and me. It's the very reason why they were to work as Haggai exhorted them regarding the temple, to put their hands to the stone and their shoulders to the wood and do the work of reconstructing that place. Now, the result of their labor seemed so paltry. The ones who were in the know were deeply discouraged because of it. Just as the work of our hands may seem so paltry, I mean, At the end of the year, you look back, don't you? And sometimes you think, another year has passed, and what have I done? But it was, of course, only a foreshadowing of what was yet to come, God himself. Haggai tells us, verse 5, My spirit remains in your midst, fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens, and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land, And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, a glory greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, like an overzealous relative, God sometimes makes promises that won't come for a little while. Right? But there's a funny little detail here in the text that assures us of its coming. You should notice, again, the repetition. There was the be strong, be strong, be strong repetition, but there's an even greater one. Did you notice it? The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. So declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts again and again and again. Haggai, in his two chapters of prophecy, includes that term 14 times. Six of them right here in this text. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. The point is an emphasis. Do you know what the host is? It's not someone who's hospitable having people in their home. The host to which he's referring is the army of angels. Not the ones of a posture like we've sung moments ago, gently folding their wings and observing the peaceful fields at night. But these are the angels of war. The warriors, the one like the one who came centuries before and met the Assyrian army in the fields outside Jerusalem and struck down 180,000 of them overnight. That's what this host is about. God is the Lord of the army of angels. The point is, the power of God shows us that we can be sure that this will come to pass. In fact, in some sense, the shaking had already begun. The king of Persia had sent gold and silver with those returning. The treasures of the nations were already coming in a literal sense. But decades later, the Persian nation would be shaken in the face of a conquering Greek power. And decades later, the Greek nation would be shaken in the face of a conquering Roman power. And decades later, the shepherds would be shaken. And the words would be repeated, fear not, fear not. As the heavenly host, as the army of God swelled out across the fields 
around Bethlehem, the Lord appeared and declared, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all nations. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now the angels commended him for only one reason. He commanded them. And the earth would shake at the death of this Savior, and soon the nations would come. In Acts chapter 2, we read about following the death of Christ at Pentecost. The disciples are gathered in Jerusalem, and this is what we read. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit was coming. The world was beginning to shake. The nations were prepared to come in. And Luke explains to us, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and Libya and Rome and Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all of them were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Here's what it means. Haggai was right. It means that the word of God coming through an obscure little prophet 500 years before the birth of Christ was right. This is the house of God. You're sitting in it. In fact, you are it. This is the house of God and is more glorious than ancient stones because it's filled with you. The living stones called by God to belong to him, his sons and his daughters. So let me ask you a question. Do you expect that the means of grace that God designed is still the path that God will bless? He has come to you so that you may come to him. May you believe that on this Christmas Eve. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord our God, we give you praise and thanks that you have given your word to your prophet ages ago, by which you have called us to follow you, by which you have called us to obey you, to come to you, and to find life in you. And for this, Lord, we give you thanks. We pray that you would help us to recognize in the depth of our hearts your love for us in Jesus and to trust you for it and to follow you in it. For this we give you thanks and praise in his name. Amen. The gospel is God's generosity to us, of course, in our need. And the collection of alms is the giving of our generosity to others in their need. And so there's not really a more appropriate thing for us to do as a congregation, as a family of God, than for our deacons to take up a collection of alms on this Christmas Eve. 
this year in 2017, so that you can know some some details of this, our deacons have collected roughly $60,000 in alms, which is remarkable. That's a beautiful thing to me. And about 15000 of that was for a special offering for hurricane relief down along the Gulf Coast. And with the exception of some of that hurricane fund, which is awaiting ongoing allocation for projects of relief yet to unfold, with the exception of some of that fund, almost all of those alms monies have been dispersed to help families facing financial hardship, to help the unemployed, to retool for future jobs, to help some of our disabled neighbors to pay their rent and stay in their affordable housing, and to help our neighborhood mercy ministries like Behind Every Door and refugee outreach and assistance and much more. And so I invite you and even exhort you to once again demonstrate the generosity of the gospel. The box is in the center of the theater for your tithes and offerings, and deacons will be at either side of the theater to collect alms for those who might have them to offer. And as always, elders will be here at the front to pray with and for you for any need that you may have, because our God is certainly good. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. Will you stand and sing?